Let us now attend to the word of God as it comes to us from John chapter 11, 28 to 44. This is the midst, in the midst of a story, a long, long story in the 11th chapter of John about the death and resurrection of Lazarus. Jesus has heard of his uh, friend's uh, sickness and has uh, delayed his arrival and has come after Lazarus has died and is met there by his two sisters, Mary and Martha. And our story begins at the 28th verse. When she had said this, when Martha had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying quietly, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. And then Mary, when she came where Jesus was and saw him, fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, come, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay upon it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. I knew that thou hearest me always, but I have said this on account of the people standing by, that they may believe that thou didst send me. And when he had said this, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with bandages and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. By your grace and through your mercy, we pray, O Lord, that you will allow these words to come to point to the word just read and to the word made flesh in Jesus the Christ. For we pray this in his name. Amen. The story from which I just read is a story that demands a hundred sermons. As with many of the stories in John's gospel, the story of the resurrection of Lazarus is unique to this gospel, and it contains about six or a dozen stories inside the one story. There's the story of Jesus and his approach to and avoidance of the death of his friend Lazarus. There's the story of Lazarus who suffers from a life-threatening illness, hoping for healing from his friend. There's the story of Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters, who desperately send a message to their, to their family friend, the miracle worker, Rabbi Jesus. There are the disciples who do not like the idea of getting close to Jerusalem, which is where Bethany is, because people are out to get Jesus. And there's the story of the grievers and the onlookers who are trying to make sense of why Jesus can heal a blind man, which we looked at last week, but he doesn't appear to be able to do anything for his friend. And on and on go all these stories. 
The story of the resurrection of Lazarus, like every human story, is a complicated one. It has drama, it has questions, it has mystery, it has disappointment, it has things that cannot be explained. Is your life complicated? Does it have drama? Does it have questions? Does it have mystery? Does it have disappointment? Does it have moments that cannot be explained? The story of Lazarus and the story of Jesus has a little bit of your story and a little bit of mine. The other thing that this story has is the Bible's shortest verse. Verse 35 is the shortest verse in many translations. It's something we learned in Sunday school a long time ago. John 11, 35, Jesus wept. Now, most of us know that the Bible was not originally composed with verse numbers. Those were added later, much later, not until the 16th century, added by transcribers and translators to help record and find the location of Bible text that wish to return to, an easy way to find your way around the Bible. But for 1,500 years, there were no verses in the Bible, no verse numbers, no John 3.16 placards showing up at the Roman Colosseum. So one can imagine that there are stories behind where the translators put the verse numbers. I mean, really, why are some verses so long and why are some verses so short? So it's made me wonder when they decided to put verse numbers around these two words, Jesus wept. If the translators were not trying to tell us something, something like, pay attention. Take a minute and look at Jesus in this story. Don't miss it. Look carefully. Jesus is before the tomb of his best friend, and Jesus is weeping. Do you see it, they say? The miracle worker, the, the one who turned water into wine and dispenses living water to Samaritan women and heals blind men. Do, do you see what he's doing now? He's weeping. Pay attention, because this too is what the Son of God does. He weeps. He weeps because God weeps. It's what God does when God comes close to the suffering of his children. God weeps. Do you remember the last time you wept? The last time you got that lump in your throat and tears filled your eyes and you couldn't see and your nose got runny and your throat closed and you couldn't talk. It is such an uncomfortable and cathartic moment. And you feel vulnerable because there, there you are with your feelings on your sleeve and your face getting red and your lungs trying to catch your next breath and you feel like you're not in control and your heart is beating so hard as if somehow that will keep it from breaking completely apart. Your feelings have been hurt. Your loved one has died. Your lover has left you. Your shame is exposed. Your best effort has failed. Your home has welcomed you back. You've been treated better than you deserved. Those moments when life is so much bigger than your brain and spills into your heart and gut and releases the spring of pathos and love and tenderness and vulnerability and you feel more human than you've ever felt before. And so John tells us that Jesus wept. Jesus becomes a blubbering mess in the face of his friend's grave 
And with that two-word verse, John pushes the point about who this God is that showed up in the flesh. This is a God whose heart breaks the closer he gets to the broken hearts of his people. In just a few days, he will be sweating drops of blood in the garden. He will be crying in despair on the cross. He will be pleading for forgiveness for the people who are driving stakes into his wrists. This God feels. This God has a heart. And the divine specs he gives to the human heart is that part of its purpose is for it to break. It's what divine hearts do. They break. And when our hearts break, we participate in divinity. When we weep, we participate in divinity. When we feel, we participate in divinity. When we suffer for those who suffer, we participate in divinity. Strange, isn't it, that we so often apologize for our tears when it's our tears that get us closer to God, the feeling heart of God. It may be the reason why I have shied away from preaching on this passage over the course of my preaching life. I've preached for over 40 years and have preached on this story only once, only once since the first time I preached on it in my preaching class in seminary where the professor publicly denounced my best effort as one of the worst sermons he had ever heard. <laughs> I crawled back to my room and wept quietly that maybe I wasn't met, meant for this preaching thing. Maybe I wasn't God's man after all. I was too young, too immature, I suppose, to realize that it is the tears, it is the doubt, it is the despair that makes us God's people. Some of us remember way back when Edmund Muskie, senator from Maine, was running for president and his wife became the subject of a false and malicious attack by the Nixon campaign. In a New Hampshire snowstorm, the candidate stood to defend his wife and her honor, and with his defense came a cracked voice and swelled emotion and tears got in his eyes, and the press had a field day. The candidate was weak, they said. He was emotional, they said. He was not in control, they said. And his poll numbers plummeted, and his supporters fled, and Muskie had disqualified himself by his weeping. Who wants a president who doesn't cry? But John and his translators say, pay attention. If you're looking for a God who doesn't weep, then you've got the wrong guy in Jesus. Because Jesus is the son of the one who creates hearts that break. You remember the story of the parents waiting outside the preschool for their children on Valentine's Day, and the children came running out, each carrying with them the little Valentine surprise upon which they had been working for days to give to their parents. And one boy, trying to run, put on his coat and carry his gift at the same time, tripped and fell, and from his arms flew the surprise, which landed on the floor with an obvious ceramic crash. In a second, the boy let go an unconsolable wail, the father bent over quickly and said to the boy, that's all right, son, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. But the mother, such wiser in these things, grabbed the boy into her arms and said, oh, but it does matter, it matters a great deal. And she wept with her boy. 
It does matter. It matters a great deal. These lives we live and are lived around us, these hearts that break, these eyes that fill with tears. Pay attention, John says. Jesus is weeping. He's wearing his feelings on his sleeve, and he's vulnerable, and he's a mess. Because this is the nature of divinity. It's the whole reason why Luke tells us that God entered the world and takes the risk, makes himself vulnerable to put himself at the mercy and clumsy care of a couple of scared teenagers. Pay attention. This is who God is. God in God's finest hour. When we offer our te diems, we are offering our praise to this loving and vulnerable God. In Arthur Miller's great play, Death of a Salesman, Willie Loman's wife, Linda, confronts her sons with the fact that their father, whom they had been neglecting and rebelling against, was collapsing in mind, spirit, and body. And finally she yells out, attention must be paid. And isn't that what Jesus does when he weeps? Attention must be paid. He says, these hearts are broken. A man has died too young. These sisters don't know what to do. Life is unfair, and the divine heart does what the divine heart does best. It breaks, it weeps with those who weep. I remember reading an article in the Wall Street Journal a few years ago entitled Breakfast with St. Peter, written by Bob Brody, a New York man who had shown up for work one morning and was informed that his job had been eliminated and shown the door that afternoon. After getting over the shock, he reached out to his network of associates and friends to start the process of finding a new job. One friend, Peter, with whom he had lost contact, called and asked him to breakfast. And at breakfast, he began to share from his own experience of losing and finding jobs, all the ideas of what to do. But it wasn't just one breakfast that Peter called him for. It was many breakfasts, many coaching sessions, many emails, many phone calls. All the while, Peter had a stressful New York job. And then one breakfast, Peter showed up not looking himself and was forced to reveal his secret that all the while he was helping his friend Bob. He had been fighting prostate cancer, and now the cancer was winning. But why? said Bob. Why, with all you had to deal with, why so much time with me? It's what makes Peter's into St. Peter's, I suppose, just paying attention. Attention must be paid, which perhaps is what the prophet calls us to when he lays out the divine requirement, the ways by which to participate in divinity, do justice, love, kindness, Walk humbly with your God. Walk humbly with the Savior, the Galilean rabbi, who stands before the tomb of his best friend with tears in his eyes and words caught in his throat and cracks forming in his heart. Nothing to do but weep. For this is what God does with God's broken-hearted people. Pay attention says Jesus. Walk humbly, do justice, love kindness, weep with those who weep, let your heart break, participate in divinity. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.